we finally made our way through Acts chapter 7 as we looked at the events of Stephen's life and his martyrdom and uh, saw the greatness of his God and his deep, deep faith in God. And that led to his, his death. And we saw some lessons from his martyrdom last week. As we begin here in chapter 8, Luke continues that theme, but he shows us the result, what happens following the death or the martyrdom of Stephen. We're going to look at the first half of Acts chapter 8 this morning, which is uh, one of two of the events where uh, Luke takes us and switches us over to see we've gone through Stephen, now we see Philip, and two events in the life of Philip's life to encourage us in our walk in our life for Christ. It says here in Acts chapter 8, now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, uh, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard this, that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet, he had, uh, he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages 
of the Samaritans. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray you would make it alive. You would encourage us and strengthen us and challenge us, inspire us, dear God, as we see the word of God spread through the world. We pray that as we watch a city get changed and see a man give his life for you, that it would stir us to give our lives for our city. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In the text we've just read here, there are four or three verses here which kind of set the theme for us and tell us what this is about. Verse four, I think, is probably the key verse of this section, where it says, therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. That same theme is repeated in verse 12, and then again in verse 25, all of them tell us about preaching the word of God as people went. The theme that sets this passage is evangelism, preaching the word of God, sharing the gospel with the people who need it. The gospel here, as we come to chapter eight, is moving beyond Jerusalem and it's moving into the world. It's expanding. Uh, the early Christian apologist Tertullian uh, wrote this of this period and this early period in church history. He said, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. And that is true in this passage. The blood of Stephen becomes, you will, the the, the seed the, of, of what would be. It causes things to, to move and to grow as it goes on. Satan and his enemies of the gospel intend to destroy the church. And that's what we see at the beginning of our text here. In verse uh, one, it speaks about Saul consenting to his death. And then it talks about a persecution that arose. This persecution would be persistent in Jerusalem and around for some time afterwards. But it says, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then in verse three, it says, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. That word havoc is, is a word which, which genuinely means to destroy. Saul's intent in moving through Jerusalem and finding these Christians and finding these believers and dragging them to, uh, to, to prison and, and persecuting them was not just to slow down or deter. His intent was to destroy. And that was Satan's intent. And he was using Saul to do that at this point, to destroy the church. But God had promised that this could never happen. He promised, and when he was here on earth, that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church and here he was making sure that did not happen instead of destroying the church so while Saul is going trying to destroy them instead of destroying it it did the exact opposite it made it stronger persecution made it stronger verse four which we read there before is a wonderful verse of encouragement therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word that scattering and that spread of the gospel rises from the tragedy of Stephen's death, and it rises from the tragedy of the persecution that comes to the people of Jerusalem and the church and the believers there. It shows us the unstoppable purpose of God's power or the unstoppable power of his great purpose. Do you remember, uh, it was the beginning of this year, I think, wasn't it? The, we had that big fire just out uh, past the, the hills and out in the hills. In fact, we had a couple around, didn't we? 
But one of the big fires out beyond us, which kind of spread over through the north and the, and the east, it was, it was big and they had trouble containing it. But I remember hearing through the news on several occasions, the, the problem with the fire was not that it was big. I mean, it was big, but they said the biggest problem was that the fire kept jumping because of the winds. And as the winds would blow, it would blow the embers, some of them hundreds of meters away, starting a new fire somewhere else, starting a separate fire. So we had one fire going, but as things came, it blew and another fire would start over there and another fire would start over there and over there. That's what's happening here. As Satan is trying to blow out the fire or stamp out the fire of the gospel in Jerusalem, the embers of the gospel fly through the world. And fires of the gospel and fires of churches are started in places all over the world. The church is like a fire. Luke focuses on one of the fires that are started here. One of the fires that is started by Stephen, and it's with one of his contemporaries, Philip. Another one of the six men who were chosen in Acts chapter 6 as the, the deacons, as the helpers in Acts chapter 6. Philip now he becomes the focus of what we see here. He goes to Samaria, uh, that place kind of between the, the southern part of, of where Jerusalem is and the northern part where Galilee is. There had always been and been for many, many, many years tension between the Jews and the Samaritans because the Samaritans were a mixed breed. They were Jews who had been mixed with the Gentiles, and, and they, as a result, had a very mixed religion to them as well. And so the Jews wouldn't look at the Samaritans as being uh, their own or their own people. They were something lower than them. And so there was always tension between the Samaritans. And that tension, that problem that arises because the, the Jews look down on the Samaritans makes this a very important passage. It makes it a very important moment that a Jew brings the gospel to Samaria and that there is this unity that builds now as a result of what takes place. He goes into the city of Samaria. There was a city of Samaria, we know from the, the Old Testament at the time here that um, is written. We're not exactly sure where that is or which city it is. It could be a number of cities there. It may have even been Sychar uh, where Jesus had spent some time during his uh, time, but it was the chief city, the capital city of Samaria. There's much we can learn here about the power of the gospel and the potential problems that come as we present the gospel, as we watch Philip here in Samaria. And above all, we are reminded by Philip of the priority of evangelism to share our faith, to speak of Jesus Christ. We must, we see it in several verses here, we must preach the gospel always and everywhere we go. It is who we are. The world needs the gospel. Our city needs the gospel. People need to believe the true gospel. Let's start at the beginning and consider this idea that the world needs the gospel. As the persecution begins and and that people begin to spread through the world with the gospel, the persecution seems probably to be focused on the Hellenists. So remember those ones that Stephen was working with, the, the Jews who had come from other lands to Jerusalem and found Jesus Christ as Savior there. It seems to be focused on that part 
of the church. And so it's probably the Hellenists who spread out. Maybe they, they go back to where they came from and their, their original lands or where they were born or where they grew up and, and head back that, but they take with them the gospel. And they preach it as they, they go along. But we find here a transition as it moves out. Luke gives us this little transition statement, which is easy to fall over. It says in verse two, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Here we see the honor of the faithful. We need to honor the faithful believers. We need to honor the faithful by being encouraged by their example. And when I say honor the faithful, I don't mean that we need to exalt them or worship them. There is nothing in true Christianity that says we have these special saints. We're not to worship saints or have saints or pray to saints, none of that. And so when I say honor the faithful who go before us, I do not mean that we are to set them on a pedestal where they are to be worshiped or praised or prayed to. That, that is clearly not scriptural teaching. What I mean by this is that we recognize and are encouraged by their example. We see the life that they have lived, that they have been faithful, that they have shown an example of what it is to live for God. The burial of Stephen may seem like a passing detail, like it's just something he puts in so that we know what happened to the end of Stephen. But in the Jewish Mishnah, so the kind of the, the book of their traditions and their laws, it was written that it was illegal, that it was not permitted to lament over anyone who had been executed. So if someone had been stoned, it was not allowed to mourn them. You bury them and you leave them be. So when it says here that devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him, it is an outright defiance of the Jews. They are saying, you have killed him, but he is worthy of honor. He died for Christ. He died setting an example. They recognize that Stephen died honorably. As we learn of God's people, as we see you know, through the book of Acts, the people we see here, and, and all the way through the Bible, the people that God sets before us as examples, we, we learn from and we can be encouraged by them. Be encouraged by Stephen, by the God that he believed in, by the faith that he showed in that God, learn from his faith, see his God. Why was he so adamant? Why was he so strong in his faith? The Bible tells us stories of, of people, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Daniel and, and David and Solomon and, and, and the kings and, and the, the apostles and Stephen. He tells us all of these, these stories, not to exalt them, but to encourage us in our walk with God. We can look at their lives and see the belief they had and be encouraged to walk for God just as they walked for God to help us see God at work in the real lives that we have. We can be encouraged by their examples, but also to be moved by their examples. Don't just know about them. Don't just read the word of God and see the examples that God gives us and know about them. Follow their example. Live like they live. Learn from their faith. Learn from their courage. Learn from their strength. 
as you read over them, ask yourself, what was it about God that motivated their faithfulness? What was it about God that made Stephen stand and preach? And he tells us what it was in his sermon. See God's faithfulness in their lives and be inspired to live for God in the same way. They're not perfect and no one says they're perfect, but as much as they follow Christ, follow them. This is what Paul said to us. He says, as I follow Christ, follow me. These are what the example's for, to be moved by their example. The world needs the gospel. And when the world needs the gospel, it means we need to honor the faithful by following their example and being encouraged by their example. But the world needs the gospel. So it also means that we need to refuse to get comfortable. Refuse to be comfortable. We have a command to obey. His death, the death of Stephen, sends the gospel flying into the world. This is God's command. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. That was the command that God had given. Take the gospel to the world. We have a command to obey. Now, from what I can find in, in history and, and dating, uh, it, it, Stephen was martyred somewhere between 34 and 36 AD, right? So that puts it at least one year after Jesus ascended, okay? It's probably more, but there's at least one year between when Jesus ascended and when Stephen is martyred, so probably more. That raises the question, why is everyone still in Jerusalem? We are more than a year from Jesus giving the command, take the gospel to the world. And they are all still in Jerusalem. The church is growing. It's, it's big. You know, we're not the only ones who are slow to act on God's commands. They were clearly slow to act. In the early days, of course, they, they needed support. The church needed to grow and be strong there. It needed the stability of the church of Jerusalem. So there's no doubt that the church needed to grow and it needed to be strong in Jerusalem, but it was not meant to stay in Jerusalem. Perhaps like we see so often through the ages, they got comfortable. Yes, there were trials. Clearly there were trials before this, but they were familiar trials, weren't they? They knew if they spoke certain places that the Jews would come and get them, they'd be put in jail and they'd suffer for a little while, but they would go. They were familiar trials. Who knew what would happen when the gospel was taken beyond Jerusalem? We know what's going to happen when we speak the gospel in Jerusalem to this point, but what's going to happen if we take it to Samaria? What are they going to think of us? We're Jews. What's going to happen if we take it back to our home in Asia Minor? Or to Rome? What's the rest of the world going to think? We have a strong draw to the comfortable. We get comfortable in our churches. We have through the ages. We know who will be there. We know what to expect. We like growth as long as it doesn't rock the boat too much. God didn't call us to comfort. God will advance his kingdom. God has a purpose and he intends to accomplish it. When his people won't, won't go, 
he gives us a push. This persecution is the push. God is pushing his people out of Jerusalem. Not because he's mean, but because we need it. I remember when it was time for me to move out of home. And uh, my parents probably thought, finally, but it was time to move. I was uh, slow at doing that because it was comfortable at home. I got meals at night. When I go home, there'd be a meal there. Uh, if I left my washing there, I knew mum would do the washing for me. It was comfortable. So when it came time for me to move out and I had to find somewhere, I was happy just driving to work and doing that stuff. And then I could come home and it would all be there. And finally, mum and dad and some others said, you have got to go. You cannot keep coming home. You have got to go. It's time. Get out. And I needed the push. I needed the push because I was comfortable. It was much easier for me to stay at home than to have to finally take the step and say, I'm going to take responsibility for myself and do what needs to be done. And sometimes we're like that with God, church. We're comfortable where we're at. And we wait and God says, all right, it's time for you to move. It's time to shake things up. You are comfortable. You need to grow. And so he gives us a push. Jesus did not die for social clubs or nice Bible studies. God used this persecution to move the church out of its comfort and into action. God brought all of these people to Jerusalem. He brought them all from Jerusalem. They all came to Jerusalem. And what happened when they got to Jerusalem? They heard the gospel and they got saved. But God did not bring all of these people to Jerusalem to hear the gospel and get saved and stay there. He brought all those people to Jerusalem to hear the gospel, get saved and go home. Or go somewhere else, but to leave and to take the gospel with them. God's purpose has not changed. If we don't carry out God's purpose, he will make sure it's done. The world needs the gospel. We can do that by honoring the faithful and by refusing to get comfortable. And so we must carry the gospel. Our theme verse for this text, verse four says, therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. See the field. We need more like Stephen. We need more people like Stephen. And the thing I think that we need more like Stephen is people who are willing to stir the pot for the rest of us. I suspect some people may have been a little bit annoyed with Stephen. And if Stephen had just kept his mouth shut, Saul would not be so angry. The Jews would not be so, so troublesome. And we could have just kept doing what we were doing and doing it. But we need more people like Stephen who stir it up for us so that we will be moved and grow. The result of the persecution was, wasn't just scattering. So the persecution came and the people didn't just leave. It says they left and took the gospel with them. They preached the gospel everywhere they went. We are called to carry the gospel with us everywhere we go. The gospel then went around the world, but it also remained in Jerusalem. Not everybody left. Church stayed and Jerusalem continued to be a mission field and people began to, to, to continue believing there, but also it spread through the world. So this didn't make the church smaller. It made it bigger, more influential, more godly. It doesn't matter where you go or what takes you there. 
but the gospel should go with you. When you walk out this door, you are entering the mission field. I put a small sign by the door with that thought on it. and Maybe you'll see it on the way out. As you leave this room, as you walk out of this door, you are now entering the mission field. You're entering the place where the gospel needs to go. So as we see the field, we need to sow the seed. Take the gospel with you. You don't have to be a trained theologian or a pastor. You don't have to have been saved for a long time. You know why you believed and how you believed. You have us to help you when you don't know the answers or when you get stuck or you need encouragement. That's what the church is for, to encourage each of us as we share the gospel, to help us grow and understand. Be prepared to share the gospel. Write out your testimony. Take a moment. If you haven't done it already, take some time and sit down and write out, how did I get saved? Write what it was like before. What happened to, to bring you to Jesus Christ and, and what life has been like afterwards? Write it out so that it's fresh and you know how to express it. Write out your testimony. Write out even some things you might say. Think about how might I start a conversation? Or if somebody asked me this, because this is a question I've been asked before, how would I respond to that? Think about them. And then you, if you think about it, you go, oh, well, the next time I hear that question, I'm prepared. I know how to answer that question. I know how to speak to that. Take your Bible with you. You know, I know today a lot of us use electronic Bibles, and I, I do a lot. But I found one thing that is certainly helpful is, is taking just, you know, an old paper Bible with me, places where I go. Because there's, you know, if I'm sitting on my iPad reading my Bible or my phone, nobody knows I could be looking at Twitter. But when I'm sitting out there at the coffee shop reading my Bible, people look and they say there's something different. It gives me an opportunity to say something. You know, I know, you know maybe we don't have one. We've got Bibles here if you need a paper Bible. But that's simply just one way we can take the gospel with us. Take some tracts. We have things on the back table. And I try and get different uh, things to show different ways to share the gospel. You don't have to give them out necessarily. But they may help you as you read them to know how to share the gospel in different ways. Carry the gospel with you. Not only does our world need the gospel, but our city needs the gospel. As we come into verse five and move on, we see Philip come into this city in Samaria. The city in Samaria is a city that is deeply religious, and just like Samaria, so our city is deeply religious. As we read through and we saw what happened here in, in Samaria, the, the, the people are deceived by a man named Simon who is, considers himself to be great. He is a, a sorcerer and the people believe him and, and follow him. And, and then Philip comes and, and Philip preaches the gospel and, and the power of God is seen in Philip and people get saved and are baptized there. But in Samaria and in this city of Samaria, there is a great deal of superstition. Samaria was a deeply religious place. Their religion was a mix of many things. Because they had been brought in from so many places, there was beliefs of, of Jewishness in there and, and, and God, and there was uh, paganism from other places and all sorts of things that had come in and kind of made this mix, a uh, mash of, of religion. 
This is what makes Simon such a big influence. In history, he is known as Simon Magus, the magician. He was a sorcerer. The word sorcery means magic, and it refers to the magi. And we know the magi who came to see Jesus and, at his birth, but the magi were the priests of Medo-Persia. And their religion was a mix of a lot of things. It was kind of a mix of, of science and superstition that was all sort of bound together. They combined astrology and divination and occultic practices with uh, things like history and mass and agriculture. And they put all these things together to make this, this religion and would use all of these things. Their, their powers could be trickery uh, or it could be demonic. They had ways to, to show power, which were just you know, like magicians today, which are just uh, to fool the eye. Some of it, though, was purely demonic inspired. But Simon had come to this place and he had made a great name for himself by mixing himself into this great mix of, of religion and, and being able to present himself as someone great who knew a lot of things about the world and about mysticism and he could, he could heal people, it would seem, and, and do these, these, uh, these tricks and these miracles. He deceived the people into thinking that he had the power of God. Certainly, Satan has the power to deceive. We, we, he has a power to deceive with miracles. You can see it with Moses. When, when Moses goes to Pharaoh and, and God gives Moses some signs to show, Moses does the signs and the sorcerers of Egypt are able to replicate those signs by the power of Satan. So Satan is clearly able to, to deceive with miracles. There's also a great deception here. You know, as I look at this, I see Simon is a lot like the, the charlatans and the false teachers and the, the miracle workers that we see around today. You know, as I look here and as I see the superstition of Samaria, it reminds me of the religion of our neighborhood. Before we write these people off as simple, ancient folk who just believe superstition and we're, we're a, a much more enlightened age today, consider how alike we are as a culture to the people here. Our society has a, real, a religion not unlike theirs. Most people around us, the vast majority of people around us have a self-made religion. It's a mix of things from all over, things they want to believe, things they don't want to believe, things they've been taught as they grew up. It's a mix of things they want to believe. Some of it's a mix of, of, of religion, mixed with science, mixed with superstition. Most have a sense of morality based in some kind of religious code. We've assimilated so many parts of all sorts of religions into our lives. The West, particularly, has turned the idea of science into an absolute belief. We're as vulnerable these days as to the charlatans as the Samaritans were to the charlatans. They just have different clothes. We have faith healers and miracle workers today. I tell you, I, I did not know until I met a, a, a miracle worker how prolific 
short limbs were in Australia. Everybody seems to have one limb shorter than the other. And miraculously, he is able to make the limbs the same length and cure all of their spiritual problems. We have self-help gurus. A whole industry started, which is, is the same. It's all a mix of, of religion started by people like Tony Robbins and, and Oprah and others. And now we have a whole industry that flows with people who have mixed all of these different beliefs into the idea of what success and life can be. Look at people. Listen to them as they speak. And you will hear they are deeply religious and easily deceived. Our city desperately needs to hear about Christ. This is why Philip goes down, says in verse five, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. It says in verse eight, the result as he preached Christ and people believed was, and there was great joy in that city. Jesus changed Samaria. People believed the gospel. They left behind their false religions and they started to believe Jesus. It's not the first time that Samaria has heard the gospel. Jesus had been there. Like Jerusalem, when the gospel came, multitudes believe and the city has changed. Joy fills the city. Just as Jesus changed Samaria, we believe the gospel. We believe that Jesus can change our neighborhood. Well, will you pray with me for a moment? Father, our, our city, our neighborhood is lost in darkness. Deception and, and empty religion. We know people, perhaps on our mind right now, deceived by darkness. We're surrounded by people looking for hope but they're looking in the wrong places and they're being deceived by the trickery of Satan. Open our hearts, oh God, open our eyes to see the spiritual need that is right next to us. Move us out of our comfort and into the battle. We ask that you would use us to change our community, to bring great and eternal joy. Fill this church, Lord, as we go out for you. Through us, let your saving goodness come to, to young and to old alike, to people of every walk of life. Make your name known through us. Even in these prayers, dear God, our, our desires and our hearts are prone to selfishness. So forgive us for this and cause us to seek your glory, the salvation of others. In Jesus' name, amen. The world needs the gospel. Our city needs the gospel. And one thing we see from the example that happens here with, with uh, Simon is that people need to believe the gospel. They need to genuinely believe the gospel. The gospel can't be bought.
It can't be bought. It can't be bought with money or deeds. It seems a great miracle has happened and Simon has believed. So he's gone in and people begin to, to, to believe Jesus Christ. And, and one of the converts that Philip has is this one who is considered great, this Simon, this leader, this sorcerer. And I suspect that as soon as this has happened, perhaps Philip is so filled with excitement and joy that this great spiritual leader has finally found Christ that maybe he pulls out his phone and he texts Peter, Peter, Simon is saved. And he's baptized. Peter and John hear what's going on down there and they come down to, to see what's happening. And in, in part to put the apostolic approval of what is going on down there. Because it would be quite a significant event if indeed Simon has believed. It soon becomes apparent that Simon has only professed belief. He has not genuinely believed the gospel in fact, the church fathers, the ones who follow after the apostles, don't speak kindly of Simon at all. The reputation he leaves behind is not good. He is known by the church fathers. They call him the father of heretics. Justin Martyr, one of the, those that followed the apostles, writes in his apology that Simon claimed to be incarnate God. So here, as we see what takes place, we see that Simon, Simon has only professed a belief. There's something behind this. There's some reason he has done it, but he has professed belief, but clearly has not believed. There are many, many like this today. Try and buy our way to heaven with our goods or our good deeds or our generosity, or whatever it may be that we think might be pleasing to God to give us a way to heaven, maybe our church attendance, or our good morality, or our obedience to our parents. When uh, Simon sees the apostles come, and, and, and by the transitional nature of the beginning of the book of Acts, the apostles pray and lay hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit, and something must have happened to make this evident that the Holy Spirit came. And many scholars believe that it was probably similar to Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit came here to Samaria, there was probably speaking in tongues again as a sign that the Holy Spirit had come. Now, this is an important part of showing the, the unity between Jerusalem and the rest of the world. So something clearly happened, probably speaking in tongues here, that Simon sees and goes, now I saw Philip and Philip had power. And I'm amazed by him. It tells us there that he's amazed by Philip's power. Then the apostles come. And when the apostles come, they lay hands on people. And some miraculous thing happens when the Holy Spirit comes. And all Simon can think is, I want that power. I want the power they've got. And so he says to Peter, Peter, how much? How much for this trick? And Peter has his uh, typical bluntness. And he says in verse 20, your money perish with you. Now, quite literally, what Peter says to him is, you and your money go to hell. That's as blunt as Peter has, has been here. You cannot buy what I have. You cannot buy what they have. And clearly, you do not understand. You do not know the great value of what is here. You cannot 
by the gospel. The gospel can't be bought with money or deeds. The gospel can't be bought for power or pleasure. Why does Simon do this? Why does he want what the apostles have? Why does he want to be able to lay hands on people and have this, this great power? Because Simon's interest isn't in Jesus. His interest isn't in God. His interest in Jesus is what he can get out of Jesus. He saw from the beginning and he is enamored with the power that Philip displayed. And then he is overwhelmed by the power the apostles display. And that's all he cares about. What is Jesus going to give me that's going to make me powerful and have pleasure? As long as he saw a way that he could gain from Jesus, he believed Jesus. As long as they can see personal benefit in following Jesus, that's the reason many people will believe. I'll believe Jesus as long as I get something good out of it, a, a feel good, a, a, a help, an encouragement. As long as Jesus gives me what I want, I'll believe him. And when it gets difficult, Jesus is no longer needed. Once it gets hard or requires more, they fall away. The gospel can't be bought with money or deeds or for power or pleasure because as Peter tells us here, it's a gift. It is a gift of God. Its value far exceeds anything we could possibly give for it. Nothing comes to the great value of the gospel of Jesus dying in my place. To believe we can buy it is to massively undervalue it. So the gospel must be believed because as Peter tells Simon, the gospel is about your heart. It says in verse 21, you have neither part nor portion in this matter, which is essentially saying, Simon, you are not saved. You are no longer in this church. That's what he means there. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. The gospel is about your heart, believing the truth of the gospel, that I am a sinner desperately in need of salvation that i cannot save myself that my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked that in my sin i am an enemy to god and need to be reconciled the gospel is about is about recognizing my brokenness in my sin not making me great the gospel is about your heart Peter also reminds us that the gospel is about repentance and forgiveness. He says in verse 22, repent, therefore, of this, your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. To repent, to turn from my own ways, from my own desires, to turn from seeking Jesus for what I can get out of him and turn to him because he is all that I need in everything to wholeheartedly follow Jesus. When I believe him, my sin is forgiven. The gospel is about your heart. The gospel is about forgiveness and repentance. The gospel is about freedom. He says in verse 23, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. The gospel releases us from what is killing us. Sadly, Simon didn't understand any of that. 
he was still focused on on what he wanted out of it. And his response is, you pray to the Lord for me. And what he asks Peter to do is he doesn't ask Peter, pray that I might be forgiven. He says, Peter, pray that the consequences of my sin won't fall on me. I don't want God's wrath. So can you pray that God won't be angry with me? That's all he wanted. He completely missed the beauty of the gospel. Simon is an important warning for us all. Have you believed Jesus to save you from your sin? Doesn't matter what other people think. Do you know? Do you know Jesus is your savior? Our world and our city, our neighborhood are lost in superstition. They don't need us living comfortable lives, but pursuing God's purpose. As we leave this room, let's carry the gospel with us. How will we do that this week? How are we going to carry the gospel with us everywhere we go? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of people like Philip. They remind us sometimes we need to be shaken. We need to be stirred. People like Stephen, who will stir us up, maybe cause us angst and, and trouble in our life, but for the great purpose that people might know you as their savior. So dear God, we pray that you would stir our hearts, that we would see this world as you see it, a world in deception, a world whose eyes are blinded and clouded to the truth by the deceit and trickery of the evil one. Give us the courage to stand strong, the boldness to proclaim the gospel at every opportunity we have so that it can be said of us also that we carried the gospel with us everywhere we went. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.